This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. Is it Ben Perkert? Perkert? You know what? Um, Perkert. Yeah, you could just say Perkert. I don't really care. Here's the thing you actually said it correctly in the like Austrian way or whatever. Like my. Perkert. Yeah, they do. It's like Van Gogh. Like you're supposed to hit that first syllable, but no one, it sounds ridiculous in English. So. I prefer just Ben Perker. Just okay. like get through it. You know what I mean? <laughs> like okay. deal now I'm, I just know myself and it's, I'm I'm not going to be able to get through it. <laughs> uh, sorry, I messed you up. Okay. But it's in okay. that case, I'm really serious and it needs to be Ben Perker. <laughs> okay. All right. I can do it. I will do something. Yeah, that sounds good. Let's see what happens. Welcome to I'm a Writer, but my guest today is Ben Perker. Perker? That's good. That right? was incorrect. But okay. you know what? We can stick with it. <laughs> okay. It's sort of like, it's sort of like, I, I don't know. Now you, now, what is my name now? Ben Perkert. Ben Perkert. I got it. Okay. Yeah. Welcome to I'm a Writer But. My guest today is Ben Perkert. Ben Perkert is the author of the poetry collection For the Love of Endings. His work appears in The New Yorker, The Nation, and elsewhere. He is the founder of Backdraft, a Guernica interview series. He holds degrees from Harvard and NYU and currently teaches at Rutgers. His new book is The Men Can't Be Saved, a rollicking debut novel that grapples with a haunting question. What do our jobs do to our souls? And you might have already heard him on NPR's All Things Considered by the time you listen to this episode, um, which is such a badass resume item that I had to call it out. So welcome, Ben. Lindsay, thank you for having me. I am so excited. I, When I read the description of your book, when you announced that you had sold it, I was like, oh my God, I'm going to love this book. And I was right. It is not what I expected at all. Um, like even reading the first chapter, I was like, okay, I can kind of guess where this is going to go. And I'm having a really good time with this like absolute maniac, unreliable narrator that I also really relate to. And then it just pivots <laughs> and then it pivots and then it pivots and it pivots. And I had such a good time. Um, so I can't wait to talk to you about it. Oh, that means a ton. And I'm, as you know, I'm a big fan of, of your work. And honestly, writing this book, I can't tell you how many times I went back to eat only when you're hungry. And I just thought to myself, I need to get my character description like you know when a character walks on scene right and you've got <laughs> a paragraph like that key paragraph where 
What is it about their face? What is it about their hair? What is it about the way they carry themselves? And your book just, it just killed me. And I was like, I got to get to Lindsay's standard. And I don't think I got there, but that was, that was the bar I was trying to to get over. So thank you I, for that. I'm absolutely honored that you, that, that means the world to me because I feel like as I was reading your book, I, I felt like you were the adult in the room and I am the child. Um, poets writing novels is one of my favorite things. And um, because you are so attentive at the sentence level, at the word level, at the image level. And um, so that I was in any way inspiring is amazing. Yeah, I mean it. Thank you so much. Um, all right. Can you read to us a little bit from the book? Give us a taste. Sure. All right. I'll read, I'll read actually from something pretty close to the end. This is a fight scene between Seth and Moon, who are our main characters. And in many ways, the novel has been building up to them having this eventual clash. And I'll just read two relatively short-ish paragraphs. Um, it's Seth and it's Moon. Moon's real name is Robert. Moon is a nickname. And they are just beating the living shit out of each other. <laughs> the balloons in my brain were deflating. With the world slipping away and his forearm locked in place, I homed in on a patch of skin. I bit down, hard. I wanted to take a chunk out of Moon. I'd disappear him, piece by piece. He cried out, either in pain or surprise or both, and hurled me down to the pavement. Whatever was holding my shoulder together had had enough. I heard a sharp and much deeper tear, indicating that I was no longer intact, that my left arm had parted ways with the rest of me, even if technically it remained attached. I was still reeling from the impact of this injury when Moon began kicking me in the ribs. I wasn't expecting this added brutality, but there he was, drawing his right leg back as far as it went, then snapping it home repeatedly into my side. I wished I'd been lighter, light enough for him to punt me far away and out of range, but instead I lay flat and inert, a throw pillow filled with gravel instead of goose feathers. In between kicks, I mustered what little oxygen I could to call out his name. Not Moon, but Robert, please, Robert. He wound up for one final kick and then, at the last second, relented. I could see blood was trickling down his forearm, and Nadav rushed in to hold him steady and inspect the bite mark. Son of a bitch, Moon kept repeating. Son of a fucking bitch. Excellent. Thank you so much. Um, I have been thinking a lot about um, Seth's character in terms of, like, this thing with, and maybe it's it's not true, but it does feel... Like there is a thing of masculinity where you try on these different personalities and see what fits. Hmm. Um, or maybe that's just personhood. Because I, I guess I've been thinking about it in terms of Seth and Moon and my two sons. Because my hmm. oldest son is is very much like, who am I? You know, like, am I this person? Am I that? You know, now I'm really into this. And then, you know, the next week that's completely forgotten. And now I'm really this, you know. And my second born is always himself at like at any cost and they're mm. both amazing to witness and i feel like there's these two poles um where it feels like moon is that is that too like moon is straight up like um primal instinct like rawness self-preservation yeah. just like going through the world with whatever feels good and seth is kind of like telling himself a story about what the world thinks of him and it's mm. not a true story. 
Um, mm. And so I don't know. I wanted to hear from you about about where these two characters came from and like how they developed as you wrote. Hmm. Yeah, I love the question. That's so interesting about your kids. Um, my wife and I, we have two kids. They're both younger, so we'll we'll have to see who they become, <laughs> which yeah. characters in our books they they become. But, <laughs> um, and obviously the the writers of their own story. But I, you know, I think that one of the things I was really interested in is that we throw around this term toxic masculinity. And I started writing this book a decade ago. That was before the Me Too movement. That was before the Trump presidency, um, where now it feels like all the ways in which masculinity can go rotten or has, you know, problematic elements that are sort of inherent to it. Like that, that's become a larger part of the conversation now. But mm -hmm. even when I started writing the book a decade ago, it struck me that th there, there are so many different ways to engage and perform masculinity and can have like really negative and toxic consequences for those around them. In the case of my main character, Seth, you know, he is really, he's, he's perceptive about everything except himself. He has a complete blind spot for, for his own strengths and weaknesses. And he's incredibly neurotic, but he, he does a lot of bad things. He makes a lot of terrible choices throughout this novel. And then, as you said, Moon, his frenemy slash alter ego, whatever you want to call him, you know, he doesn't consider his actions at all. He's, he's the opposite of neurotic. He's, you know, super ego or id. I, I forget which is which. God, I need to. I need to <laughs> study my Freud or not. Right? Freud is. We don't study him anymore. Fuck Freud. Exactly. Um, he's just. He, you know, he just moves through the world with a bluster and a and a muscular sort of energy, but also a kind of charisma, right? And having them side by side, like those chapters, those scenes were always my favorite to write because it's so important to Seth that he be better than Moon that he's not as loud, that he's not as brash, that he thinks harder about the things that he does. But at the end of the day, do we necessarily believe that he's a better man or a better person? Right. Uh, I think that's an open question. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, like it's kind of something I worry about in terms of my kids in general and in terms of my own self is like, at what point are you being who you really are? And at what point are you performing what you believe people want from you, which right. um, in, in a way can be um, like an act of love, right? Or an act of compassion, but, but it can curdle very quickly and you can mm. become sort of this empty cipher. Mm. Yeah. It's, you know, and we're talking about our kids a lot because this is what parents do mm -hmm. um, because there's such a you know huge part of, of your life. We've been working with our, our son on saying, please and thank you. Mm -hmm. Right. And I do all the cooking in, in my household. And so I'll make him, you know, his dinner. And then I, I give him his dinner and I really want him to say that. Thank you. And when he says it, it's completely performative. There's like, no, it's clear that there's like no depth of gratitude. It's just like the, the skim of, of, you know, just performing. Thank you. Right. Mm -hmm. And that, that sometimes gets under my skin because I, you know, it's clear that he doesn't mean it. But then when I'm being honest, I'm like, well, Jesus, Ben, like how often do you really mean thank you when you, <laughs> you know, when you go through like, I don't know, you're like in the parking lot and, and someone backs out their car and you're like, thank you for giving me your spot. Like, am I really experience, experiencing genuine, authentic gratitude in that moment? I think I'm largely performing it too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think um, 
that's another example of like, I want to teach my kids to act in the way that society will reward them for acting or, or at the very least leave them alone. <laughs> I guess I'm always thinking about like, um, like the boomer people in their lives kind of mm. being like, you know, like the, the, the specter of, of a boomer being like, this is a spoiled brat. They didn't say thank you. They have dirty nails. Their hair is messy. When mm -hmm. my actual philosophy as a parent is to be like, we're not going to sweat any of that stuff. Right. And, but it's like, but I also put pressure on myself and on my kids to perform the way they're supposed to perform in the presence of people who expect those things. And mm. it's like, I guess that's what society is. Right. Yeah. I, I don't know. And it is confusing. I've, I've, I never really, and I've stopped saying, okay, smile when I'm taking a picture for right. the same reason, because I don't, I just don't want that note of falseness to mm. enter into our, into that note of performance. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know, do you think Seth ever really realizes that it's a performance? Does he ever come to that realization? Well, you know, I think that's one of those questions that I, I'm excited to see where readers land on it. And, totally. and one of the, you know, um, the book hasn't been out that long, but already I'm getting some emails and having some conversations about Seth's arc. And does he really change or does he not really change? And, and I wanted to, because the book is so engaged with questions of authenticity, like what is a brand, right? And I, I worked in branding for a bunch of years as a copywriter. Um, Seth works as a copywriter at a branding agency. Not that we're the same person, but there is, <laughs> there is that, that, you know, that similar bullet point on the CV, I guess. And is a brand something that changes the world and has real substance and has real depth, or is it entirely surface? Like if you think of even like the etymology of brand or like the origin of brand, right? It's just something that lives at the skin level. And for Seth, you know, once he gets laid off, which happens really early in the novel, I think the struggle for him is both who am I now substantively? Like what is my self-worth? But also like, what is my brand? They took away my business cards. They took away you know, the, the most important thing, which is that when you go to a cocktail party, you introduce yourself and you tell your job. And for him, as we see later in the book, like Judaism becomes a larger, uh, plays a much larger role. And, and is that out of a sincere desire for redemption and to engage with faith on the deeper level? Or is it just that being Jewish is, is now an identity that he can wear because the other one got taken away? Mm hmm. Yeah, I love those, those, you know, when he goes to Israel, and then later when he um, continually goes over to Nadav's house, this man who approaches him, when he's really at one of his lowest points and says, hey, come, come to my house, come have dinner. This, this mm -hmm. holy man, this, um, he's, he's an Orthodox rabbi, right? Yeah, he's a Chabad rabbi. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and um, I really love that because at first when he's in Israel, he's miserable, and he, mm. he doesn't get it at all. But then he, when he's, when he's with Nadav and his family, he's still, he's still not completely there, but he's having the conversations he's returning again and again. It does feel like a shift in mm -hmm. Seth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he's also just in a more desperate place. I think, I mean, when he goes on the birthright trip, he's, he's still employed. Um, but after that, I mean, and we could talk about this for a while, but Chabad is a really interesting organization and, um, 
you know, depending on how you feel, right? Like walking down the street in New York, I'm Jewish. Um, you know, I guess I, it's a problematic thing to say. I guess I look Jewish or presumably, <laughs> you know, like I'm constantly getting stopped by, um, you know, by folks asking me if I'm Jewish. Really? And I, oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, are they are they people who are they rabbis? Are they just, you know, fellow Jewish people who want to talk to you? Like, who's stopping you? Who I'm just exceptionally good looking, Lindsay. <laughs> you are. Just, ben yeah. is very handsome, everyone. Oh, and wow. you'll see that when I post his headshot. But yes, that's why I'm on the radio. Um, <laughs> but so it's and it's not just me. Right. I mean, I think like at a lot of New York subway stations at especially certain times of the year. Right. Like if it's Hanukkah, um, you know, they might be handing out like candles for the menorah or if it's um, Pesach, if it's Passover, you might get a box of matzah offered to you. Um, and it's not just anyone, I guess, who, who again, like looks Jewish is a very, I, I'm, I'm uncomfortable talking about it because Jews look so many different ways, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, like, yeah, my friends and I just, we get approached and I rarely engage. And to answer your question, it's not, it's not just rabbis. I mean, it's like different members of Chabad. It's not just Chabad. It's like other Orthodox organizations, but um, that outreach is almost always inconvenient, right? Like I'm heading to a doctor's appointment or I got to go pick up my kid from school. I don't have time to engage, but I'll be honest. And I don't know most, if most people feel this way, if, if they have, no one's ever said this to me, but I'm always touched by it on some level because I'm aware of the fact that like, maybe one day I'll need matzah actually, mm-hmm. like maybe one day I'll want that connection. Mm-hmm. And my character desperately needs it, right? Mm-hmm. Like when, when, when Habad is there outreaching to him, he doesn't even have a, a place to live really. Mm-hmm. And um, so again, you know, it, I, I think one of the questions the novel offers is, is he going there out of a sincere desire to engage in what Habad believes? Or does he just need like a roof over his head mm-hmm. and, and someone to like tell him it's going to be okay? And I love that there's not, and there never should be an easy answer to those questions. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, the the question that you're getting asked about his arc and whether or not he changed, um, like, I think it's okay and, and almost necessary for the answer to be yes and no. Right. You know, I, I think you're really trying to write a, a life in this, the, like a moment in life, but you're also trying to, to you know, work on these larger questions about masculinity and capitalism and um, faith. And those are not neat and tidy, put it in a drawer, we're done with this, you know, and I, I found the, I found the book so delightfully perplexing, because hmm. there was never a time that I was like, yes, I can, I can clearly see Seth's motivations, I can clearly understand, you know, why this character acts this way. Um, I, I never felt like I completely could map it out. And for me as a reader, I, I live for that because then the book stays with you as you go. And like, Mm. maybe there's something in your life that allows you to understand this one part of the book, but this other part of the book, you kind of put away for later, you know, and then something happens or a memory occurs and you realize like, oh my God, that's kind of what this was struggling with. And I, I don't know, I, that's part of why I found the book so fun is because there was never like, there was never a moment where I felt like Seth was either completely fucked or completely Mm -hmm. in the clear. 
Hmm. Yeah. I, and I also think, you know, it's like he never gets what's coming to him, really. Right. But on the other hand, he he sort of does. Like, uh -huh. and major spoilers, so I guess cover your ears. But like, he ends up with broken ribs as a consequence of, you know, the, the fight scene I read. He um, loses his job. He loses his apartment. He's, you know, like, shit just goes south for him. But we never really feel like he... Um, he, he really gets what's coming based on everything he's done. And we could talk about like why that is like sociologically, why that is, why, you know, privilege, we, we could, we could talk about all of that, but, um, but he's also in such pain. And mm -hmm. one of the things, like I spent about 10 years working on the book. I wrote the first draft really, really quickly. And then I spent nine and a half years trying to understand how the hell fiction works and go really deep in, in reading novels and admiring them like, you know, like your work and, and so many other writers. And it's fascinating because, you know, a lot of the motivation came later in my revision process. Like I didn't, I didn't feel like I needed to give a whole lot of backstory. And now there's barely any backstory in the novel, but there's way more than there was actually in the first draft. And so I I'm almost like scared because I think I, I can only imagine how much more perplexing it would have been had I not gone through those revisions. I think like your light touch with things uh, like the, like the Michal, um, mm. there's, you know, for people who haven't read the book, although I'm sure all of you have at this point, um, Michal is someone who lived with Seth's family when he was in high school. Michal was Muslim and then moved back to Lebanon. Right. And, yeah. um, and like, we get a little hint of the story, the, you know, his mom brings it up when you're in Israel, try to look up Michal and he's annoyed by that. We never really get, we, we are given the story, but, but the, the light touch with which we're given the story, which mm -hmm. is that this person lived with them. He moved away. Seth kind of kept in touch, but felt burdened by it. It almost to me showed me how much it meant to Seth in Seth's life more than mm. Seth could tell me himself because mm. we already know what kind of storyteller Seth is. Right. And like, if we're just given these little details, yeah. Um, I don't know. It made it heavier to me than it, than in it, if like there had been a chapter of the Michelle storyline. Mm. So I oh admire that. I admire the choice that you made of, of kind of just like nodding toward those things. I, I love that. And, and, you know, I've done, a good number of these interviews and no one has talked about Michelle. And, and on some level that is my, my background is in poetry. And that storyline is sort of like the poem for me of the book. Like it's mm -hmm. so under the surface, but um, I mean, look, as, as the writer, I'm conscious of not trying to explain my book or, or say anything that would interfere with a reader having their own experience of it. But I will say this, the book doesn't say, can the men be saved? It says the men can't be saved. Mm -hmm. It makes it, it makes like a pretty bold declaration from the jump. And I think then the question is, okay, well, why? And, you know, for, and I, I guess I'm speaking like in terms of myself, but also about men generally, though, maybe I'll just talk about myself, like growing up with the conception of heterosexual masculinity, um, heterosexual, you know, like that, I never felt like there was any permission to not express romantic interest, but even just like intimacy, right? Mm -hmm. In a way that feels deeply American. You watch like the World Cup is just starting. 
Um, and when you watch, this is the women's world cup, but when you watch the men's world cup, like other countries, like these guys are like making out, right? Mm-hmm. Like they're like touching each other and they're so, it's like beautiful how, yep. how tender they are with each other. In the U S mm-hmm. we don't, we don't do any of that. Right. It's like, we are so, and is it connected to homophobia? I think it almost certainly is. Right. But it's also just like the, the, the loneliness of men and their inability to, to connect. So who is Michelle? Um, to Seth, who is to Seth? I think there is, it's, it's less that there's like a clear romance here or love story. And more to me that men are just so, um, inhibited and are, are taught and sort of forced to suppress any sort of intimate or vulnerable impulses. So to me, it's not like, oh my God, well, clearly Seth was in love with this um, exchange student early in his life. And then, and then he left, it's less definitive than that. I I think it's more about like, even if Seth did feel that way, he could never admit it to himself, much Mm -hmm. less to the reader. Mm -hmm. And that that to me is the unsavable, like that is the part about masculinity that I think is just like, cannot be salvaged, actually. That is such a beautiful point. And something that I haven't done enough thinking about but like, I remember, I mean, the way women are with each other, we're always naked around each other. We're grabbing each other's boobs, you know, like we're just like, so all my female friendships growing up, like I could draw their naked bodies from memory, you know, like we were just like that, you know, like kissing, touching, whatever. And so like when I see my kids doing stuff like that, my husband will kind of be like, Ugh. and I'm like, what? You weren't like that, you know, like. And he's like, no. And I, and I realize it's such a different experience growing up as a boy in the Mm. ways that you're exactly describing like that to me is heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah. It it, it is to me too. And I think, you know, because, so I, my first love is poetry, right? So um, I had amazing English teachers in, in high school. I had amazing English teachers in middle school. I was really lucky. And I just loved poetry from such an early age. And so when people would ask me, you know, what did I want to be when I grew up? I would say, I want to be a poet. And the faces that I would get in response, right? Like, I, it, and it was quite clear that like someone who maybe looks and performs like me just wasn't supposed to occupy that kind of a role because to be a poet is not just to write poems. To be a poet has certain um, cultural associations and to be a poet is to be deeply vulnerable and sensitive and weepy and like emotional and all these things that we maybe associate with femininity, but we don't permit, um, masculinity of, of a certain kind, right? Because masculinity is way more varied than the way we're talking about it here. But, mm-hmm. um, it was, I mean, it's not like a sob story, right? I mean, I went on to write my poems. It didn't, it clearly didn't fuck me up that much, but I remember no, but- just feeling like, why, like, why am I receiving this response? You know, and and it's not about me, but like, it, if you if you think about more broadly, like, how many people, how many men specifically, are suppressing whatever dream, job, or or whatever, however they want to live in all these ways? It's such a loss. It feels like a one-two punch of like not only are you being looked at like that because you're a man and saying you want to go write poetry, but also because of our heightened capitalism in this yeah. country, like what you don't want to go, you know, make a, you don't want to go be a day trader. 
<laughs> you know, like <laughs> it's like a one-two punch of exactly the kinds of things that you're talking about in this book. That's so, yeah, that's a really good point. You're right. It's, it's, it's so decidedly anti-capitalist that it also, it causes some degree of shock. But the, the reason I wanted to read the, the Seth Moon fight, which I've never read um, out loud before is, you know, Seth has different, and we could talk about it or not, but he has different female relationships, um, sexual relationships in this story. But I don't think there's a single moment of physical intimacy that reaches him as deeply mm -hmm. as when Moon is just kicking the living shit out of him. Mm -hmm. And it, that just breaks my heart, actually. I really do want to talk about the female relationships because, you know, to me, there was an interplay of the men can't be saved, but Seth repeatedly tries to save the women in his, oh, except for his mother. <laughs> he yeah. tries to save the women he's romantically involved with again and again, and they are not asking him to save them. And right. he sort of comes up with these narratives in his head about them that he then becomes the savior in, and they are just kind of left perplexed, confused, enraged, annoyed, indifferent. Um, right. I, I want to first talk about Josie, because she's another huge basket of questions for me. I really enjoyed reading her because she's, she is not um, easily understandable. Her motivations are not easily pinpointed. Um, mm. She contradict, contradicts herself. Um, she is also very clear if you can get break through what's, you know, Seth's murkiness. Um, but I wanted to, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that because Josie is his coworker at first before he gets laid off. She's kind of on the rise. She sees him, the way that she talks to him about himself is very illuminating, mm. but she also has this sexual relationship with him. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about how, how she came to you, how you wrote her, how you allowed her to be this complex person. Yeah. Well, so one of the things I think, I mean, I, I love novels. I'll, I'll answer it, but I'm gonna answer it a little bit in a circuitous way. I love novels with unlikable narrators. I mean, not not always, right? That doesn't like win the day for me, but um, I am that cliche. Like I was deeply moved by Catra and the Rye. I in, like Lolita is one of my favorite books. I'm, I want to spend time. I don't know what this says about me and my diseased mind, but I want to <laughs> spend time with, with problematic people, problematic only in like a, you know, 2023 sense, but pe people who have have deep problems right mm -hmm. who are troubled and are going to have to fight and claw on the page to make sense of whatever predicament they're in but i do think that if you have someone who is problematic or unlikable as your main character you got to put a ton of pressure on that character with the surrounding characters mm -hmm. so someone like josie yes you know they hook up late night in the office um but she's like she just eviscerates him right like seth is so delusional about his own self-importance he's written this tagline that's gone viral he thinks he's going to be partner one day josie doesn't think that right like she she really sees through him entirely and is cutting with her remarks um but i you know i'm i'm what you said is really interesting i think you're right seth does want to save all these women but josie doesn't need his saving at all mm -hmm. and even even to play that role of the savior is is to perform a type of masculinity and it's mm -hmm. it's um it doesn't endear him to to those women for sure 
No, not at all. Um, I, but I, I think like it was like an inverted power structure, their mm. relationship. Um, even as she's sort of being uh, oppressed at work in all the ways you can imagine, um, she's she's like um, got more power in the, in the relationship that she has with Seth, although Seth wouldn't say that. Right. We, we can see it and, and Josie knows it, but Seth doesn't believe that, you know, he believes mm -hmm. Josie needs him and looks up to him. And um, so I really enjoyed that. I, I really enjoyed the notion of a woman who could have, you know, like could be a really talented on the rise worker could also be held back by, you know, sexual harassment and, and misogyny and whatever, but it could also be just taking what she needs from a male character. Mm -hmm. Not that that's not that that's her right in any way, but just that she's complicated. She doesn't make sense, you know, like just in all the ways that women are never allowed not to make sense. We always have to make sense. And I love a woman who who is contradictory. Mm. That means a lot because it, I it was really I mean, the book is called The Men Can't Be Saved. And it was really important to me that I wanted all the characters to feel equally real. Like I, I didn't want Josie to get short shrift, right? She needed to be her own person. And I do think that personhood is complicated and motivations are complicated. I loved, I, not past tense, I love the show Mad Men, um, one of my favorite TV shows to this day. And it, it actually started, it debuted right about the same time that I began work at a branding agency, which was an interesting coincidence. Um, because in many ways, this novel was my attempt at looking at what the ad slash branding world looks like today, right? Like Mad Men is, is presenting a very different world, but a lot of that same toxicity, but also excitement and electricity and just like zaniness and uh, it, it persists. But what I wanted to say is that someone like Peggy, did you, did you watch the show? Oh, yes. Yes, I did. Okay, cool. I figured. So someone like Peggy, right? Like where she starts out in season one versus where she ends up. Um, she's such a complicated character and she's so successful. And I think part of what makes her successful is that she can be different people in different conference rooms, in different moments. And um, she's ruthless actually in mm -hmm. certain ways. And I think I wanted Josie to have a similar ruthlessness. I didn't want her to be um, just a victim. Yeah. Or like, you know, um, like subjugated people always have to be like the moral center of things so that we can show that they deserve the same, you know, or that they are more deserving of, of respect because they are so pure. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think a lot of us are over that kind of, <laughs> that's its yeah. own patroni patronizing sort of subjugation. Mm -hmm. And so to allow someone to be complicated to me is so much more interesting and real. Mm. Yeah. That's like, have you, have you read that VS Naipaul thing about like the romanticization of the agrarian farmer as being sort of just like, um, you know, this like icon of virtue. But if you look at like someone driving an ox through their field and using a stick to like prod it in its, in its anus mm -hmm. to just like cause it shock to keep moving like that. Like we have to be really thoughtful about who we romanticize and what are the politics of, of that romanticization and what does it do? Like, how is it self-serving? 
Right. It's a, just another pat on the head, you know, like I'm sick of being pat on the head, <laughs> which mm -hmm. I guess if you've read my work, you'll understand. <laughs> For sure. I For don't sure. want to be pat on the head ever again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Ramia is another uh, romantic partner of Seth's. When he loses his job, he goes to work at a chocolate and coffee shop and um, she's his coworker and she's an artist, but she's mainly um, an addict and through her, he starts taking these pills. Um, mm -hmm. And she's another person who he f immediately feels like understands him on a level that he needs to be understood on. He, you know, schemes using one of her designs to like rebrand the coffee shop and is sort of laughed away by the boss. And, um, and then she disappears, she goes to rehab. Um, and when she reappears, she doesn't remember their relationship at all because she was so high. Um, and I don't know, there's a lot to that relationship. There's, you know, the fact that Seth keeps taking the pills and they end up being nothing. And so is he, he was convincing himself again that he was high and that he was a drug addict when none of that was actually true. Um, mm -hmm. what do you think the difference between the Ramya character and the Josie character is? Ooh, you know, it's, it's interesting. So I, so I wrote this book, as I said, like it, it took me about a decade, right? And I remember one piece of feedback because I don't know. And actually I'd be curious to know, like when someone gives me feedback, I know a lot of writers, like they just can't hear feedback at all. I think that I over rotate. Like I go in the other direction. If mm. someone gives me a piece of feedback, like I just can't incorporate it in some ways. Um, but I think the singular piece of feedback that I received on an early draft of this novel. And the only thing that I didn't, the, the singular piece of feedback that I didn't actually ag agree with and I didn't incorporate in some fashion was that we should merge all the female characters. Like we don't need to have all these different female characters. They're all oh, playing a function in this book. And, and Yael and Josie and Ramya, like why not just make them the same? And that piece of feedback, it just didn't sit well with me. It didn't no. feel great um, because they're all, first of all, you know, I, I, I believe that they're real, right? Like I have to believe that they're real people. So just merging them felt almost like a, like a inhuman act, but they function so differently and they put pressure on him in such different ways. I think, you know, the writing Ramya, he's just so desperate in those moments, right? He's lost, he's, he's been laid off and now he's got this gig where he's got to wear one of these paper hats and the white aprons and he's at this upscale, you know, coffee shop slash chocolate shop. And she's, she's the coworker who's there. Um, and the fact that she doesn't really remember him or what they did together later, you know, I think that leaves us with the question of, well, then did it even matter? And did it even happen? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and for Seth, it's, that that's that's pretty devastating too oh my god that reminds me of when he snapped a picture of the rebranding of that chocolate shop and was going to yeah. show her and the pictures were gone yeah yeah i love that connection yeah and it also makes me think this is something you were talking about earlier that you you mentioned something like moon is his alter ego um so i'm like is this like another version of Fight Club? <laughs> is, is, oh, Moon, wow. is Moon Seth and is Seth Moon? Mm. I don't think that that's true, but it's a very interesting 
like psychological experiment, right? Like to think about how far we know Seth can go really far in terms of like mm -hmm. creating his own world that he adheres to. Totally. How far did that go? You want to know something funny that I would never admit to anyone? So you know that like Victorian novel tradition where when there's like an evil character, you name them like, I don't know, like dark mustachio thomas or whatever like 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 the last like the last name or the first name it's like it, it gives some indication of of their general virtue right um going back to like uh i don't know what was it pilgrim's progress the like worldly wise man it, you know what i mean like you, mm -hmm. you title a character and i'm i'm like not down with that like why would i do that that feels really dumb and obvious not to mention antiquated but then only recently i was like wow, the character's name is Moon. And if you think about a moon, it's sort of like, it's constantly orbiting, it, like like it's right there, mm -hmm. right? The moon mm -hmm. is dark and versus Seth and S and sun. And like, there is sort of this like yin yang sun and moon thing. Um, but I don't want to push too hard on it because it starts feeling corny. But all, all this to say was that it was not, it was not intentional, but I, I see it. I love that because your subconscious was doing that work, right? Like you, your subconscious knew that there needed to be some sort of counterpart, you know, like whether mm. you started with moon or you started with Seth. Um, yeah. It's cool that my subconscious decided to take on that work as in addition to its usual job of just like making me doubt myself. So that's <laughs> it's cool, but it's like literally moonlighting in this other way. <laughs> and gaslighting. And um, gaslighting. Yeah. <laughs> No, I think like, you know, writers have a special, um, I think writing is, you know, the actual physical writing and the imagining and et cetera, et cetera. But it's also leaving your your subconscious open to those kinds of connections and not, um, and just kind of a, a, like not consciously opening a door, but allowing the door to be open. I don't know. I'm not explaining it correctly, but I think that is work that we're always doing mm -hmm. any sort of creator, I would say. Um, yeah. You know, art, music, writing, I think we, we, you know, between ourselves and the selves that we are unable to access, we, mm -hmm. there's a mushy barrier that, you know, lets them pass, pass through each other. Hmm. Can I ask you a question real quick? Please. What, do you, do you map out your novels in advance? Okay. Um, I did try to do that with yeah. only once with eat only when you're hungry, because mm -hmm. I, I aimed to write a complete draft in six weeks because that's all the time I had off from work. Mm. Um, and so I thought I've got to know where this is going. So I, I did, I put, I made an outline and by the second day, the outline <laughs> was thrown away and I decided I'll just follow this where it's going. Right. It's not going in the direction I thought it was going. Um, yeah. So I don't, I tend to just, who, that's not to say that I won't in the future, but I tend to just go, I just go with it. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? Oh my God. You, you know, the answer. I know. I don't know. I can outline anything. I'm a, I'm a weirdo <laughs> poet. If you can see my desk right now, it's like, does this man outline? Are you kidding? <laughs> um, it's like, I, I like that. And everyone uses this quote all the time, but I love the quote. So I'm going to use it too. That EL Doctorow quote about driving at night with your headlights on and just using that as the you know, the only way to know where you're going, basically, mm -hmm. um, just following mm -hmm. that light, I, that like, here's the thing, right? When I, when I teach fiction to 
my undergrads at Rutgers, I say, you know, there are great novelists who map out everything and outline, and there are great novelists who don't and just listen to the words. And I, I want so badly to believe that, but my heart is so much more in the camp of those who just follow the writing, even though I acknowledge that that can come with costs. It can make revision messier. Um, Publishers Weekly, they wrote a really nice review of, of my book, but they mentioned, you know, that it's a bit freely freewheeling. And I remember thinking like, yeah, they're right. You know what I mean? Like for some, for some readers, that's going to be shapeless, but for others, it's kind of thrilling to just like authentically be on a journey of discovery. Um, I, I mean, you know I, what I'm I saying? absolutely. I, I mean, I think it's kind of back to what I was saying in the beginning where it's just a pivot and then a pivot and then a pivot and then a pivot. And you're just kind of like, this is completely unique (laughs) you know like this was and i feel that way when i read marcy demansky as well Hmm. i really feel like as she's writing and i don't know this at all i haven't talked to her or anything but i really feel like as she's writing she goes okay now what if then she just got on the train and then she just took the train somewhere okay now on the train there's going to be this and that's going to happen okay now and so i feel like that is really fun for me and i get that that's not what other readers are looking for but it is really fun to sort of go oh my God, I'm completely unmoored. So I got to figure out like where my moors are. <laughs> where, where my moors at. It's so yeah. fun. And I think, I think, you know, as a writer, it's um, as the type of writer that I am, and it sounds like the type of writer that you are, it's um, accessing what we need to access as we're writing. Mm. It's the way we can do our writing. Whereas, you know, other people different, right? Like I get it. Maybe one day, like a plot will just fall on my head and I will have to execute that plot the way that it has fallen on my head and I'll need that outline. But for now it's voice and character and imagery. And that's always where I, where I come from. Yeah. I love that. I get, and we can move on from this, but uh, cause I, I mean, I love these like super nerdy writerly conversations, but I'm always cognizant of the fact that some, some don't. So I'll, I'll make this really quick. This but... podcast is called I'm a writer, but so who's listening, oh, sure. right? Okay, good. Okay. This is for, this is for you fellow writing nerds. <laughs> um, I feel like, you know, here's what bugs me a little bit about the whole thing is that I feel sometimes like there is actually this bias toward the mapping and the outlining because of the implied rigor. Mm-hmm. Like we, we as writers, we talk a lot about craft as we should, but even just like the term craft, like Garth Greenwell talks about this, like how the term craft kind of implies a sort of like almost physical labor. And we are so invested in conveying the workness of, of writing and you know, putting together a spreadsheet or, you know, mapping an outline, like it's tangible work that you can point to and say, I am, I am going through a rigorous process. And so maybe then it's implied that the converse to not have any sort of map and to just start writing is lazier, is not as rigorous. And that's sort of what bugs me because I, and this is not about me, but like I spent 10 years on this novel, not just like hanging out. My rigor was in working every sentence to the bone, like really trying to make sure that whatever freewheeling path I take you on, like each, I want each cobblestone to shine. Like Mm -hmm. I want 
so so yeah, it, it may be really messy and on some level lazy in certain regards. Don't mistake that for a lack of um I don't know, just like sweat. You know what I mean? It's it annoys the shit out of me because there are writers like um like I'm thinking about how Jesse Ball wrote that book. I don't I don't remember which book it was, where he he wrote it like in a weekend or three weeks yeah. or something like that. And everyone lauds that and and celebrates that. Like what an achievement this such a great book was written so quickly. I mean, I think a lot of us like we we feel like we have to talk about it, the work in a certain way. And mm-hmm. um, I, I just can't talk about it like that anymore. I, I have to admit <laughs> my truth. I write fast. I write really fast and I have to. Um, and maybe one day that won't be true. I, I, I you know, that one day it won't be true. But I just, I'm tired of feeling ashamed for writing the way that I write. That's the only way that I can do it. And mm. um, I don't think you have to spend, you spent 10 years on this book. I mean, you could have told me you spent two years on this book and I would have, you know, I would have been amazed. You could have told me you spent a weekend, you know, like, I, I think like, I don't think we should go backwards and, and say to ourselves, well, okay, I, I enjoyed this book, but did, did he bleed from his eyeballs writing it? Cause if not, then I don't right. want, I don't care. And they don't, right. and it doesn't deserve the awards, right? Like that's, that's the thing. It's like, we want to be taken. I want the Guggenheim. I want the nomination for the Edgar. I want all of that stuff. But is, do I have to pretend like I'm a different kind of writer to get it? That annoys me so much. Mm. Yeah. I'm glad you, you shared that. And also it makes me think, I mean, when I, you're absolutely right. Like when I say I worked on this novel for a decade, roughly, which is all true, there is a bit of pride in that. And Absolutely. maybe, maybe, yes. maybe, maybe I should. And, and on the one hand, I am proud, right? It implies like a sustained commitment to a project. That's cool. But on the other hand, it is sort of like a flex a little bit. My favorite, we got to, we'll, we can move on from this, but I just have to share this story because I'm obsessed with it. There was, <laughs> did you read the New Yorker profile of Leonard Cohen from like a few years ago? No. Oh, so good. Um, and apparently there was like, I may be like butchering this or whatever. We're novelists. We make shit up. <laughs> Generally, this is what happened. Bob Dylan and Leonard Cohen were like on a road trip together. So they were just like hanging out for five hours. And so um, Leonard Cohen goes to Bob Dylan. Oh, no, no, no. Sorry. Bob Dylan goes to Leonard Cohen and says, um, hey, I just want you to know Hallelujah is a gorgeous song. How long did it take you to write it? And Leonard Cohen says 10 years. And then there's like more silence driving. And then Leonard Cohen's like, oh, you know, well, um, like Rolling Stone is is also, you know, really good song. How long did that take for you? And Bob Dylan just goes, oh, that took 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. And then they just drove, which <laughs> I can imagine the most awkward. Like, can you imagine how awkward the rest of that car ride? <laughs> but I've no, never. That's, I was going to say, like, I am a huge punk rock music fan and you know, or DIY music fan. And, and, and that stuff is written fast and furious and dirty and raw. And I love it just as much as I love stuff I know took way longer, you know, like I, I just, um, I don't know. I, I, I think there's this whole mythology, like sometimes the myth is that it only took them this long to write it. Oh my God. And then that myth is not accessible to other people for some reason. Right. Right. Which is obnoxious. And, um, 
I always think about Otessa Moshfeg also who who has a persona that she and I don't know her personally, but her persona is I am a great writer, fuck you. And it's like, I feel like all of us should act like that. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. I think about like, um, William Faulkner sliding the manuscript for, I think it was Sound of Fury, across the bar top to his friend and said, this is the greatest novel you'll ever read, you'll ever read. And it's like, why can't we all, we have to have this like, you know, hair shirt, brow beating, you know, like this was so hard. I sacrificed so much, but it's like, no, I'm, I'm actually, I'm making a thing for you that I am good at making, <laughs> you <Right>. know? <laughs> yeah. I don't and know. also like who, you know, Bob Dylan writes it in 10 minutes, but like, that's not necessarily, we like, we don't know the rigor that went into that either. Right. Mm -hmm. Like it's not, this is sort of, um, you know, it's like, it, it's a numerical measure. It's quantitative. It's not qualitative. A book that reaches 10 people could be it, like, it could transform their lives. Those 10 people could just love that book right. versus a book that reaches 10,000 people that has much larger reach, but may, and maybe some of those people really like it, but they're not reached as deeply. So who's to say, right? I mean, you, you write quickly and you, you put out a novel really quickly. That's an amazing gift, but I'm not, I can't surmise or I can't presume necessarily that there's ease there, right? Like, like the work is still real. The work is real. It's hard and it's fun and it's hard. Um, but I think also like Re Rebecca Mackay was talking about this at one point. I know I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but that there's a lot of work that's done when you're not on the page and Ben, right. like just talking to you and all the work you do reading and like being alive to other art forms and like what other people who make are saying that is work too. And mm -hmm. so it's like, you know, we act like, you know, like, like you were saying about Bob Dylan, he, he didn't like stick his thumb up his butt and sit around and like, you know, shoot at squirrels. And then 10 minutes for 10 minutes, he wrote an amazing song. Like he was absorbing so much and he was practicing his guitar forever, you know? And like, there's all this other work that goes into when you're finally able to sit down and start writing, right? Like mm. that's work too. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe this is again sort of the specter of capitalism that expects work to look a certain way oh yeah totally i mean dolly parton wrote jolene and i will always love you in the same day hmm. and she didn't apologize for that <laughs> an icon <laughs> all right my last question for you is and please forgive me in advance oh no what is your brand Oh my God, why would you do that? Oh, that's like the most painful thing. What is my brand? I was going to ask you, what is your brand? And also, what do you wish it was? Oh my God, you monster. I didn't, I didn't know. I thought you were going to do the, okay. Um. Well, I really, I mean, I, here's how I'm going to answer it. And it's not a dodge. I, I want it to be sincere. I don't want to have a brand. Like I'm so sick of having a brand. I think part of what's exciting about moving across genre is the opportunity to not just rebrand, but unbrand, right? Mm -hmm. Like I'm, I'm a debut novelist. 
I'm not a fucking debut. Like I had a poetry collection, right? Mm -hmm. Like I like I, I on the one hand, I'm like, oh, this is cool. I'm young again. I can wear <laughs> I can wear low fitting tank tops or whatever. Like, but, um, but it, you know, like why why am I branding myself as as debut? That doesn't feel authentic to me. Like what feels authentic is here's someone who wrote a bunch of poems, published them, read a ton of poetry, and then wanted to largely just as an experiment, write a novel that was um, inspired by their time working in the really weird, sur surreal, toxic, wonderful um, New York City branding advertising space. Like that, like that, that move, I was, I'm, you know, when you have kids, you become friends or enemies, mortal enemies with other parents <laughs> in the classroom. And one of them, you know, they were telling me what they do. And then I was saying, um, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm professor. I teach at college and I was writing poetry. And then I just started writing novels and she says, oh, that's a really interesting pivot. And she <laughs> said, like, she's a lovely person. I'm not trying to like you know, put her on blast or something, but that word pivot, it was so linked in that I just felt nauseated. Like, I, what do you mean pivot? Like, I'm not like going from management consulting to like eye banking or something. It's just like, I'm an artist who's weird. Like I'm just trying different stuff. So I, I think here's where I'm going to get on my soapbox. I think we writers, like it's so important to not become brands. Like we, we need to let the art be weird and to follow its own path. And I think that's part of why I have this inherent resistance to mapping out the novel. Like what you don't, you want to let that thing be whatever it needs to be. You want to let your kid grow up to be whatever, you know, you brand your kid as the artsy kid early on or the nerdy kid or the socially awkward kid. And then like, what have you lost? You've limited a whole lot. So social media flattens us and the need to self-promote also flattens us. But I don't want to read brands. I want to read writers. I want to read authors. I want to read artists. So fuck your question, Lindsay. <laughs> I think that's the perfect way to end. Everybody go get Ben's new novel, <laughs> The Men Can't Be Saved. Thank you so much, Ben, for coming on. I knew this would be a really great conversation, and it was. Oh, I loved it. Sorry I cursed at you. <laughs> I, anytime. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> anytime. Okay, cool. <laughs>